Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Andrew Hartz, a professor of clinical psychology at Long Island University in Brooklyn. He has published articles in the Wall Street Journal and recently in The Federalist about some of the ways in which woke identity politics have sort of taken over the sphere of uh, the therapeutic industry. I'm very excited to have him on the show today. I hope you enjoy it. I don't believe in free speech. I don't believe in free speech. I can't stand what they teach. I don't believe in free speech. I can't stand what they teach. I can't stand what they preach. I don't believe in free speech. Thank you again. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Um, really appreciate it. And like I said, I, I appreciate it. Just even you just, you know, uh, writing... Writing like your recent article, I mean, there's just so few people who, who seem to be willing to critique anything at this point. If it's you know, if you're critiquing sort of progressive politics, it's just you know, you can critique the other side, of course, all you want. Like, you know, academics, a lot of academics now, they really, they actually think of their their official job, their official mission statement, really is activism. Now, it's really changed. You know, I'm always saying. Um, I'm always saying, don't, don't you have some obligation to more of a neutral scholarship or whatever? And it's that question of, you know, what side of the fence should you be on? Don't you think as a teacher, and this is related to, you know, your recent article, of course, you know, as a therapist, for example, you know, is your, is your role supposed to be neutral or, or are you supposed to be an activist now? You know, that was one of my questions for you. You know, to what extent yeah. have, have therapists become just activists and, and do they even think that that's actually their... Like when you write the article that you wrote sort of criticizing that, I mean, a lot of people would probably say, I don't understand what's the issue. Like, isn't that my job at this point? I wonder how, how mm. far that's gone to where people might actually consider that to be the official sort of job description, that, that we're healing you. Uh, like mental health, you know, sort of progressive right. politics equals mental health, which is a very interesting and to a lot of people unsettling idea. Oh, yeah. I don't know how many people believe it. But it's become the dominant schema. Right. And so it's, um, um, I was at a clinic where, where I did some of my training where the patient's issue would be formulated based on their identity. Right. So if they're, if they're a woman of color, the reason they're depressed is because of systemic racism. If they're a upper middle class white kid, it's privilege is why they're depressed. Right. And you could basically tell where, but, but I think that there were a couple of people at the clinic who just were very intimidating and dominated everything Mm -hmm. and weren't, were clearly not going to tolerate disagreement on this. And everybody else learned to, go along with it. And um, I'm not sure how many people in their private practice would have such a hateful lens towards their patients. Um, But there are definitely, it's definitely more therapists than you think who will have, you know, racially contemptuous attitudes towards their own patients, which which is, I, I mean, which is outrageous. And how many um, 
So it's something that I heard more and more. I'd say the first year of my PhD program, when I started the training, it really didn't come up, I don't know, ever. And every year more there, you know, it was the same as in the rest of the culture. There was kind of like a tipping point at which all of a sudden people felt comfortable expressing extremely, you know, um, just a lot of race and gender based hostility towards patients and other providers in a way that was really shocking. And I think part of it was, you know, Trump was in the White House. And so that it, it that, that made things weird. And, and also, I think a big part of it was, I just had no socialization to be prepared for. How do you respond when your boss <laughs> insults you for your race? How do you respond when your colleagues demonize a patient based on their race or feel comfortable insulting somebody for their race? And right. Um, it, it does only go in one direction. I mean, I, uh, people will say, well, you know, there are, uh, there are white men who are entitled and rude and there's something to that. And they, you know, and, and maybe they have narrow minded views about women that, that happens sometimes, you know, and, and, and that's fine. I think that's not entirely not true, but you would just never say that about any other. Like, you know, right. there are Asians who you would just never start a sentence that way because you'd understand that there was something that there was um, a type of group based aggression. Right. You know, in speaking that way. And and, and how well is that going to help? Is that going to help you empathize with the patient? Is that going to help you help them? You know, is that going right. to make, is that going to help them? Is how is this furthering the work or is this, and I, and I, my sense is it really damages the therapeutic work. Um, yeah. yeah. One of the issues that you bring up in your article was, um, you know, that this is a time it's sort of particularly ironic because, uh, you know, there's probably a lot of people. One of the things I talk about on this show a lot is just that there's a huge section of the country that has just kind of gotten thrown under the bus, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, those people, I mean, a lot of people are very angry right now. A lot of people, they really have, they don't just feel thrown under the bus. It's not just, you get this thing all the time with very well-meaning people. They say, well, they're just like all these, you know, white men are just, they're just upset because they have to give up a little piece of their pie finally. And this poor, you know, it's this thing of sort of dismissing the concerns, but it's much more than that. Yes, I'm sure there is that element, you know, like white men have always been in charge of everything historically. This is the sort of narrative that everybody's always been in charge. And so we're now being asked to give up just this tiny piece and we're just pissed off. And we come up with all these sophisticated ways of, of you know, complaining about it to act like, you know, we're somehow being victimized, but actually we're just mad because the other people are just asking for what's fair. And of course, to some extent, that's true, but to a large, to a lot, to a, to another extent, it's, it's not true. There's a bigger thing when you, when you're talking about like your therapist, um, uh, that was digressing coming around to my point though, in your article, you, you mentioned that these people, a lot of people actually kind of need therapy more than usual now because, they are actually dealing with. You brought up uh, some a specific case of somebody who had dealt, who had a history of uh, a sort of history of sort of anti-white, um, you know, aggression against him, and then right. comes to a therapy session sort of to deal with that, only to be, you know, there's a danger there that if that person 
comes to the wrong therapist and just gets more of the same, where can you turn? I mean, because, right. you know, your therapist is one of those sacred institutions, you know, it's like, it's, it's really, um, I mean, it's, it's for a lot of people sort of just your, it's sort of replaced. Some people go to a priest, you know, and as secular people have their therapy instead. Um, some people, I'm not the first person to make that analogy, obviously. <laughs> your doctor is another thing, you know, you can't be going into your medical doctor to ask about some question, this this is like, you know, the kind of people that are doing this would understand a different analogy. Like if I said a kid wants to talk to somebody about safe sex, but instead the person shames them and they just don't right. ask anything and run away and then go have unsafe sex. Um, I feel like kind of a similar thing. You're in a danger where this is a this is a very important and sacred and uh, there's a trust here, you know. And if you're ramming your your ideology down somebody's throat uh, under the guise of, of like, this is mental health, is to teach you that on some level you're supposed to understand that, you know, your the color of your skin or your sexual orientation or your, your gender identity is somehow toxic and inherently problematic. You know, these are the questions, yeah. of course, in identity politics that get thrown away, thrown around all the time, but specifically the topic of, like, it's really not the therapist's job to be judging in that way I, is, the, is the real question, or, or is it, you know, and obviously you, in yeah. your article, you're saying no. <laughs> well, well, there's no, I mean, there is kind of something about, you know, how impartial can a therapist be? And obviously mm -hmm. we're flesh and blood and are going to have biases and misperceptions that are inevitable. And, you know, um, and have, there are times you know, inevitably, what well, you're you're going to have a value divergence. You know, um, and you have to be able to try to be, uh, I think, to be aware of it <laughs> if right. it is happening, and to try to understand that you know that's not something that you want to impose. Um, uh, so, you know, th that that's a philosophical kind of question that's been around for a long time. I I, I think with the with a lot of the new, newer views, um, it just feels like the, the level of aggression is so much higher. Um, you know, um, and it, it, it has, it's not like I'm, I think smoking is bad. I'm going to encourage you not to smoke. Right. That's not your value system. You feel like maybe there's some health costs, but it's worth it or something, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so we have a, you know, that's, that's probably fairly innocuous, you know, or it's something that we could probably work through if it, if it came up and I'd be like, okay, you know, I'll try to respect that or something. And, and people engage in other behavior that might be riskier, you know, um, if you have a history of severe mental illness and, drink a lot, <laughs> you know, and I think you should cut down and they don't, you know, right. Where's the law? So I think you can think of examples that are trickier. Um, but so, you know, that, that, that happens. I think there's something here and it does send, it does center around the identity politics issues of right. group based judgments. Um, that, I think just has a lot more potential to do a lot of damage. And, and, and it is related also to, I do think there's more and more people who could, could benefit from help 
and who wouldn't want to see a therapist because there's an assumption that, you know, therapists come from a particular worldview. It's secular, it's liberal, it's, um, um, and, and maybe it's, it's woke or at least woke light. Right. And that, that's just kind of the, so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't want to see a couples therapist, you know, maybe you're thinking, I don't want to see a couples therapist because they're going to come in with a particular value system around gender that I don't adhere to. Right. And right. then I don't want to have to have a battle with my therapist about what gender should look like. You know, like, um, if you're saying, you know, I feel like as the husband, I feel comfortable working more and contributing in that way. And maybe I'm more involved with the kids as they get older or something. And, you know, this is, a, this is, feels like it's who I am. This works for me on an emotional, romantic, interpersonal way. And the therapist says, you know, no, actually dads need to be involved at a younger age and right. need to work less and be involved. So, you know, I think a lot of people, maybe even if they're, they might not even entirely be conscious of it, but they walk into the room with a kind of, at least a kind of pseudo formed assumption about the types of values that are going to be imposed right. on them. So I think you have to find ways to like signal to patients. Um, this isn't a place like that, you know, right. or this is a place where you're, you can say what masculinity means to you right. and you should be sincere about that. And that's something that we welcome. Like you probably would need to say that, if you want to get it, otherwise there, there's a good chance they're just going to assume what your values are. I mean, and for me, I'll just say like in terms of spirituality, like people assume I'm an atheist. You know, they, they, they assume a kind of secular framework. They, they assume, they assume I'm liberal. Uh, that's just an assumption. And I mean, part of that, maybe that's the beard or I don't know, or the haircut. I, I don't know how it comes <laughs> off, but it's like, I, they, they think that. And so, um, mm -hmm. So you have to like, so there's, it's, it's challenging to think about how to signal to people, you know, this is a place where you can talk about things that maybe you don't think you could. Right. I think that's, you would think that that's, um, that trust of, you know, that, I mean, reaching that point where, you know, you're, you're instilling this sense of trust and, and encouraging people to reach that point where they are really going to be willing to be really open and honest about difficult and mortifying and frightening things. I mean, that's sort of like, isn't that the job description? Of, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and that's, I would think, a huge challenge of like, you know, you're really getting there. You're really getting somewhere. You start getting that. And if you, you know, if people are just walking in already just afraid, I mean, I would think normal people, you know, it just seems like that's a whole part of the thing anyway when you're, when you're walking in the door to a therapist is just sort of, Go ahead, tell me about your de you know, tell me about all your demons. Let's open up about your yeah, existential yeah. despair. That's just a difficult thing to do in the first place without without, you know, the therapist making you feel judged if you say something. If you say something like uh, one of the people you wrote about in your article was, you know, um guy, you know, comes in to a therapist of color and says and says, you know, I think I lost this job because of affirmative action, right? Wasn't that <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And yeah, then yeah, you know, um yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. And I think, and it's also like, I mean, I think, I think there's something it's, it's, it's hard to overstate like how much having 
one big thing you're not allowed to talk about can impair the entire process. Like that you can say like, okay, there's this huge big thing that we're going to ask you to repress and keep secret. And we're somehow still going to do productive work about the other stuff. Right. You know, I mean, that's not, it, it doesn't quite work that way. It's like, it's, it, yes, I was going to say, it seems like that would be like trying to do a couple session where nobody's allowed to talk about sex. Right, right. That's exactly. just not going to work, you know. And that's and that's. I would think. I mean, I'm obviously I'm not a couples therapist, um, but I would imagine, you know, there's a point where the therapist would sit there and listen, mm-hmm, 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 and then, yeah, okay, let's talk about the sex life because that's where that's going to be like the barometer to not, you know, to some extent, right? Where you're going to have to deal with that. If if this if if a couple said, ah, we don't really want to talk about that, I would think as a therapist you'd probably have to go, well, you know, that's kind of important. <laughs> and I think, yeah. yeah, having this just kind of white elephant in the room or something or just this this huge thing, you're not allowed to address this and this and this. To me, that's just real quick. I mean, I talk all the time on the podcast about sort of just the unhealthy effect of when a culture starts sort of demanding that we repress all kinds of stuff in our psyche as unhealthy. It's like you have this mental bouncer that's always working to mm-hmm. kick your feelings out of the bar before they ever have a chance to register as feelings, you know? So you don't know, you know, if you're, if you're, you know, you're not even, it, it's sort of, again, sort of one of these things where if you're really not even allowed to even question to yourself, we've all gotten to the point where we're kind of even afraid to think at all, even in the first place, because just you're yeah. getting the message every day over and over and over and over again, like, like this is racist, this is racist, this is transphobic, this is sexist, you know, and and so people, I've just watched everybody I know over the last like five years, particularly since like 2015, there was this flashpoint thing somewhere, and then and then things have just gotten like bananas since then, and progressively, people who um, you you've seen it happen where just it's well-meaning, generally liberal, well-meaning people just getting increasingly sort of self-doubting and afraid and self-censoring, self-censoring especially, um, right? Where people are just afraid to even think uh, unwoke thoughts. So it's really gotten to that point where, like you said a little while ago, um, you know, maybe a really important part of the therapist's job at this point, when the person walks in the door, you should say, you you know, one of your first priorities should be let me make sure you understand that like it's okay to have unwoke thoughts here to some extent. Like have, right. we, have we gotten to that point where it's permeated the the uh, the therapy environment to that extent? One of the questions I was going to ask you was, you know, how bad is the problem at this point? You know, have have sort of is this sort of a, the standard thing now that that a lot of um, to what extent have the politics you know invaded the the whole sphere? How much have has this des- has the, a climate of censor your thoughts and feelings, you know, repress your thoughts and feelings that are unacceptable? Uh, how much has that um, potentially impacted mental health? Right. And I, I you know, um, I would expect it to play a meaningful role in mental health that like you that uh 
telling people using a lot of judgment and shaming to get people to repress more and more of what they feel I would assume would be would cause mental would contribute to mental illness and I don't and I I think there's something where you know especially you know it's kind of like if I say to you um don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't be anxious. Don't, you know, it's like right. you become more anxious. Now, if I say, you know, don't be angry, don't be angry. Don't you get more angry. So I, I'm, I'm the, the idea of saying, don't be racist. Don't be racist. Don't be racist. Don't be racist. I, I would assume right. that that would increase race, racist feelings. Um, that right. it's not going to be an effective intervention. Now, most of the anti-racist interventions aren't evidence-based. They, they, they didn't do research to show that this is effective. They, they, they launched it. And I think especially saying, you know, you're white, that means you're privileged. They're, you know, they need to be proud of who they are and discriminate against you. Or, you know, I've seen trainings about how why white people should feel shame or something like that. And don't mm-hmm. be racist. Don't be racist. Don't be racist. And it just seems like the more you put you're, you're pushing in a way that I would expect would increase uh, racial aggression. And, but it's never, you know, if, if racial aggression increases, then that's just proof that you needed more of this. It's like there's something where it's not, there's no ability to kind of say maybe these interventions are counterproductive. It's just that judgment and shame, whether it's socially or with yourself, it doesn't tend to be a great mechanism for resolving feelings that you don't want to have. It's usually, you know, you let yourself feel it, you reflect on what it might mean, you express it assertively, and you let it go. And that that process tends to be a lot more effective. You know, the but the repression, you know, especially more and more repression of don't think about that. Yeah, whatever it is, it could be about food, you're trying to diet. And it's like, don't think about cookies, you know, and it's like, (laughs) it doesn't work very well for people. So um, so I would, I would, uh, but the, the, the thing that's really scary to me about this is what's the reaction. I mean, the reaction is incredibly destructive, um, right. that like, if you get this explosion of all the angry feelings that you people have been told they're not supposed to have, um, that are maybe in some sport, they're more caused by the repression than, <laughs> than anything else. Getting Trump in the office in the first place, you know, is maybe that, you know, that was my first, I was going, well, there you go, guys. You know, this, <laughs> this is, this is what happens. You know, you just keep yeah. telling, I mean, you know, you just keep telling like this whole, this whole, pretty much this, this giant section of the country here, you know, it's like pretty much everybody that isn't in like California or New England <laughs> up here with us or whatever, pretty much tell them like yeah. they, they all just suck just for the nature of what they are, you know, and you know, yeah, you see more and more there's this, um, uh, there is like a, um, a, uh, a retaliation that seems like more and more that seems to be people are really getting sick of it. You know, I, when this, you know, I feel like when I first started really thinking about this stuff, like 
2015 or something like that. And I would try to talk to people when they would think most people just thought like they agreed with me. They thought, yeah, this is completely stupid about certain issues that were just kind of excessively woke and just seemed kind of silly. And they agreed with me, but they thought I was getting unnecessarily exercised about it. And then within like a couple of years, all those people, I'd go back to them and I'd be like, hey, remember that hilarious thing? You know, and they'd go, well, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Like they suddenly they sort of all kind of went over to the other side slowly, one by one, um, because they're all well-meaning kind of liberal people, you know. And then, but now those same people are kind of getting so sick of it, you know. And it's, it's I liken, um, I liken it to being in an abusive relationship. You mentioned earlier this sort of bullying behavior of, you know, like the couple of dominant personalities in the group, mm -hmm. just pushing everybody around until they, they just kind of learn to look at their shoes and keep their mouth shut. And I feel like that bullying behavior, if you've ever been in an abusive relationship with somebody, um, is very, um, that's kind of, it's, it's very similar. Like bullies don't leave you alone once you give them your lunch money. They just come back and ask for twice as much the next day, you know, and that's kind of, this is like just telling people what they have to do and making them feel worthless and just telling them they're wrong all the time. And, you know, a lot of it is just really infantile, uh, um, in, uh, infantile sort of instincts that have, it seems to me, that have just gotten grown out, out of control and they've become institutionally validated. I guess I, I would say two things about like, you could think about some of the psychodynamics a little bit about what's happening with, with repression. Um, and when you're sort of told that there are certain thoughts and feelings that people can't have. And one thing is I, if people don't find a way to articulate constructively, you know, this is why I don't like this paradigm and I find it hurtful and I find it's not accurate. And, and, and I would like to have a conversation that's more complete and, and more, uh, and, and has some of the hateful overtones taken out. If people don't find a way to like assertively and constructively express that, I would, ex which is, I think, I'm not sure that that's going to happen on a macro level, <laughs> to be honest. What, what, what I think the, the, how do what happens to all of those feelings what happens to all that stuff and my guess is it comes out in unconstructive ways yeah um as uh i think it can be goofy and buffoonish it could be psychotic and weird it could be unhinged and destructive just kind of like indirect it like it's, I would just expect it to kind of, it's going to find a way to be expressed, I would guess. Yeah. But not constructively. Right. Um, and so it's worth thinking about what types of symptoms we as a society are going to develop to, to deal with these feelings that we can't keep repressing. And, yeah. um, it, outbursts, uh, weird parent paranoia, you know, weird fixations, you know, I, I think th that's where I would expect it to go through. Yeah. And, and a lot of it could be really or despair or rage or basically this. I, I am psychoanalytically inclined and I was trained psychoanalytically as a therapist. And so I think a lot of this question of what happens to repressed feelings, what happens when society makes certain thoughts and feelings taboo? 
That's an interesting question, to, uh, you know, and, and I think psychoanalysis provides an interesting framework to think about what's going to happen and why and, and how. Um, so one of the defense mechanisms that we were just talking about um, is reaction formation. And that's where to avoid a feeling, you feel the opposite. Right. So the example here was you have a redheaded stepchild who you hate, okay, and uh, but you can't tolerate to yourself, you can't tolerate that hatred. You can't tolerate acknowledging that you hate this person because that's too threatening. So what do you do? You feel the opposite. You love your stepchild so much. Right. But it's a weird, it's usually gives it a weird tone. So it's like a love that doesn't feel good. And you're like hugging him in a way that makes him uncomfortable. You're getting him expensive gifts he doesn't want. You're intruding into his space <laughs> to express how much you love him. You know, it's a weird type of hate-filled love. The, the, the classic example of reaction formation was actually uh, people who were really anti-gay in the 90s that that a lot of some of them turned out to be gay. Mm -hmm. And the idea was their desire, their homosexual desire was intolerable to them. So they felt the opposite. They felt hatred of everything homosexual. But it was a weird hatred, right? It had this weird quality where they were going to document all of the things that were really disgusting about gay porn. And they were going to just catalog all of them. And, uh, you know, and then they were going to talk about the details of gay sex and why they were so repulsive that, you know, these greased up men were, you know, <laughs> you know, this type of thing. And it's so repulsive right. to think of them. And, and then they would make counterproductive arguments against homosexuality, it, arguments that were almost, they pushed people away from the cause. Like they'd say, well, if we let men marry men, then what's next? Men marrying chickens, you know, and you'd say, what? We'll go, <laughs> what no. are you talking about? What are you talking about? So they would they would be crazy and weird and obsessed with homosexuality and really really so and then and then they'd turn out and come you know the then it'd turn out that they were seeing gay prostitutes or something and you know and and, that and they, so it, often right they, yeah. yeah so that's reaction formation right they they defend against mm. their desire by feeling hatred. And this, and this weird kind of desire filled hatred where they defend against their hatred with this love, but it's this aggressive filled love or those, these are the examples. But there seems to be an element of this in woke ideology. I mean, that there's a type of, mm -hmm. you know, the white liberal who is, or the radical who's, they're so they think Black Lives Matter so much. They're going to go to the Black Lives, the, the black neighborhood and burn down every business. <laughs> you know, they, they they love black people so much. They're going to throw a Molotov cocktail into the only library in the black neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like you're like, what? And they're, they're like, we we care so much about black lives. We're going to make sure that none of them have effective policing. 
yeah, there is it's something... like there's something so weirdly hateful mm-hmm. about the love that feels yep. weird. It's patronizing. It feels... it's, it's like patronizing. Yeah. The way you talk to somebody who down deep you think is beneath you, the way, you know, that there's that that thing, right? Like like this, like you like. I'm going to take care of you. And it's like, yeah, I don't, you know, yeah. there's, there, there's of course a discrimination base that if you're thinking of me as someone who needs, and my experience is most of those, those, the crazy black lives matter people, they're all the white people who have nothing to do with it. I mean, maybe it's just like my circles. I'm, I'm here in uh, Burlington, Vermont, where it's almost like a mandate that you have to have a black lives matter sign in your yard, you know? And if you right. don't, everybody's like, you know, they racist over there. It's that kind of thing. It's become such a, such a normalcy like to to not to if you don't have that flag flying in front of your house you're essentially just admitting that you're a racist which is of course this is you know different right. different topic here um but but that's that's of course the thing why everybody's so so scared to you know you don't even have to be actively critiquing this you can simply um you can simply not be taking part and that makes you by default you know, uh, guilty of, of, of some, so, so everybody's terrified. Well, well, yeah. It, I think, I think it relates. I mean, you could think about, I mean, going back to Victorian era Vienna where, you know, uh, you have to be morally scandalized, you know, you have to think that, um, you know, there's, it's, they're overdoing, the condemnation of sexuality in a way that it seems to indicate a preoccupation with it. Yeah. Um, like they, you see racism everywhere and you're fighting it so hard and then you have to fight, you know, and your reaction is mm-hmm. disproportionate and your behavior is counterproductive. And I mean, this is the type of thing that happens when people try too hard to repress normal human feelings and and when they when they repress things that are you know like uh, and i think in this case it's just the fact that these are complicated issues and and that there's uh you know when you you know can't tolerate thinking about the issues with the type of complexity that they involve you know Mm -hmm. it's it starts to and the more you do that the weirder and more derailed it can kind of get yeah that's that's really a really interesting point and and there's sort of a yeah, all of this has the sort of, you know, um, has this sort of the stink of a sort of like a conversion therapy kind of vibe. Like when you talk about, you know, going into a therapist and literally being, you know, being hit with this sort of, uh, with this thing from an actual therapist, but just in general and the culture, it's sort of the, the message, you know, that, you know, this whole group of people, you know, just, just separating people into just huge swaths of people based on the color of their skin or, you know, or their biological sex, or whatever the case may be, there's something more than just, you know, the sort of good old-fashioned white guilt of, like, you know, we want to try to, you know, do something because we feel bad, because, you know, you know, but there's something else that's that's kind of, I don't know, I'm not putting my finger on it as well as you were no, it's doing. Like, it's, well, no, you're like, well, this might not be what you, where you were going, but if you're thinking about it through the reaction formation thing, it's, it's a guilt infused with contempt. Yeah. You know, it's a guilt infused with hatred. You know, it's, there's something weird about the quality of the affect and, and the tone that's coming. It doesn't seem, 
if I do something wrong and I hurt somebody that I care about, I say something hurtful to them, I, I'm gonna, there's a normal guilty response of, I, I feel bad that I, and I feel bad for the other person. I want to make it right and repair with them and, 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 and then hopefully repair and heal and move on. Yeah. You know, and, um, but it's like, it doesn't have that flavor to it. It has a kind of preoccupied, weird, it has, there's a lot of, I, I remember, yeah, it, 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 I think it has a weird quality that indicates, I mean, that's kind of the indication that this is infused with other emotions, yeah. that these, there are these repressed emotions that are, you know, that the model here, just to think big picture about psychodynamic stuff is you're, you're feeling one thing to avoid feeling another, or you're thinking about one thing to avoid thinking about something else, or maybe you're acting to avoid thinking, or you're feeling to avoid, you know, it's like you, you get stuck. If you can't let yourself be a full person and with the normal range of human thoughts and feelings, and you start repressing huge areas, then another area is going to get overloaded with all that repressed energy. And it's going to start to feel weird, you right. know, and, and it, and you get this sense of like, yeah, it's guilt, but guilt infused with, Something, else. something else with, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's got these other desires in it. And, and that's a great way to put it too. I'm, I mean, this, uh, this is why, you know, society is just getting, getting to, getting to be just really crappy too. Like, like a lot of the things that depend on, you know, some of the best stuff and the truest stuff and, you know, what ends up being the most elevating, uh, moments of humanity are going to come out of and things that help us like art for example these things come out of they don't come out of like denying all all of our dark dark parts and healthy therapy doesn't come out of denying your your, your dark parts quite the opposite right so right. i mean if we're we're just making a coat like like people don't need any help with like with with repression they don't need you know they don't need to be helped out to <laughs> to deny uh to live in denial of everything that sucks and that's scary in this world. So, and that's what like, sort of, that is, you know, the culture is really encouraging this sort of just, you know, a real kind of uh, fascist culture denial on a, on a real, on, on a whole wide cultural level of everybody just keep, you know, keep marching along and don't think about things that you shouldn't be thinking about and don't certainly don't talk about them. And, we just end up with very, we're ending up with a bunch of one dimensional cardboard people. And, and, you know, any kind of art that challenges that is going to get canceled. Any kind of, any entertainment, even, you know, I don't have to go so far as art, you know, <laughs> but, but you see that more, like you mentioned Netflix earlier. I mean, more and more, you're just getting this message constantly. And it's great to look at, you know, if you want to look at the, the, uh, the reaction to that, you know, you just look in like a YouTube uh, comment section sometime, you know, right? You just start to, because I, Hey, we'll watch. Hey, family, we'll watch this show on Netflix. This looks interesting. And all of a sudden, you're getting hit with, you know, the trope of like, you know, uh, men are worthless and uh, toxic, yeah. and at best, just sitting on the sidelines. Or, or we, or, or you know, gay people are better than straight people, or black people are better than white people. Or all the bad people in the film are white men, and all the good people are black or gay or something. Men are terrible unless they're gay, then they're okay. But they're not as good as this group. Yeah, <laughs> and you yeah, just start, yeah, yeah. you just start getting this group, this this message over and over again. And people, you know, and you just keep getting this message. People keep turning away from. Um, 
from places where conversation may have been possible, and then it becomes less and less possible, and more and more polarized, <laughs> and uh, and that becomes like its own kind of mental illness at a certain point. You know, I know one of the questions, one of the things we were going to try to talk about was, uh, you know, you've written before about um, about splitting and about about some of this, you know, this polarized the cultural polarization sort of resembling these aspects of mental illness. And I've, Mm -hmm. um, I've talked in the show a bunch of times. I'm always sort of going off the handle about my own little personal issues. And I say, Hey, where did Adam go? You know, (laughs) wait, where did he go? What's he talking about? You know, cause I'm constantly going off about like borderline personality disorder because I was in a relationship for about three years, uh, with somebody, um, that, I talk about this all the time, like in sort of veiled terms uh, about, you know, I never get into it too much, but it's just this really, mm-hmm. just really toxic, super abusive um, um, thing with somebody with BPD. And, and I just at the same time, so I was personally affected by that. Um, and at the same time, personally very invested in this identity politics thing, the parallels between this became just more and more striking to me because I have an intimate knowledge with what it feels like every moment of your day and, you know, to, to constantly, to develop the habits where everything you do is an attempt to, to manage the other person, this abusive bully, to wrangle, to wrangle them, to avoid a negative reaction. You can't win. Nothing you do will prevent that that thing happening eventually. <laughs> and the bullying sort of way of, of just, of being controlled and being uh, everything revolving around them and they are absolutely right on every level and you cannot challenge them ever. Uh, and when you do, if you challenge them in any way, then you are immediately going to be accused of abusing them. When they abuse you, 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 you get trained so well that you end up thinking, mm-hmm. That this is your fault because I know I, I know I shouldn't have asked for that. I know I shouldn't have tried to defend myself there. I know I shouldn't have asked for that little piece of affection. I know I shouldn't have done this, you know. And that's of course that sort of I always uh, judged um, like that battered wife thing. Like most, like a lot of people probably, I always felt like, what is wrong with these women? But then I finally right. I got it. You know, during that during that relationship, I realized like I'm the battered wife. At a certain point, I really I really got that. I really mm-hmm. started to see what that does to you and afterwards really angry and really just uh you know doing a lot of questioning afterwards basically you could sum it up with like why did i allow somebody to treat me like that how would i ever what kind of person am i to to let somebody do that to me Mm -hmm. um and i think that sort of bullying i'm just very i'm hypersensitive to what that feels like to have somebody um to have somebody basically uh, victimizing you while claiming victimhood at the same time, for example, which is basically kind of the core driving force of a lot of progressive identity politics is basically like the last thing they would want is to have their victimhood taken away from them because that's, the, that's mm-hmm. the co- a core part of the identity. Exactly, yeah. So maybe, why, maybe I could interject, like let's get a little bit intellectualized and Let's just talk about splitting, how it works, yeah. and then how, how people experience it, both on a personal level, and then we can kind of think about it culturally. I mean, the, the, the core of it is that it's this all-or-nothing framing of people or groups or yourself or whatever. So that um, 
it's victim victimizer is a common one. One is always the victim. The other is always the victimizer. That might be a split. Um, another one might be pride, shame. Um, one person needs to feel all pride and no shame. The other person needs to feel all shame and no pride. Um, you could think about it scaling up to group dynamics or just even inside yourself. I mean, uh, people frame, need to frame every, they, they tend to frame things in these all or nothing terms. Maybe more run of the mill clinical example would be depression. Uh, sometimes with depression, people split. It's most related to borderline personality disorder, but I, just here's another example. It's just like depression. So when somebody's depressed, they, everything's bad. They're bad. Their future's bad. Everything's pessimistic. You know, not everybody with depression fits this paradigm, but a lot do. And then you say, what, you know, what happens when you tell them that they have strengths or that they have hope or that they have things to look forward to? They don't like it. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, and so what's happening here? Well, splitting is the opposite of something called ambivalence. Ambivalence is the ability to have two contradictory feelings towards the same thing at the same time. That's a recognition that I have strengths and weaknesses. You have strengths and weaknesses. There's things that I'm proud about, things I'm ashamed of. Um, there's things I'm happy about and things that I'm sad about. And there's an ability to tolerate that towards yourself and towards the world, towards other people. You know, strengths and weaknesses, pros and cons, that sort of thing. Mm. Um, that uh, when basically the, the theory is that mix of contradictory feelings, ambivalence, is difficult. It, it, it's not just conceptually difficult, it's emotionally difficult because it... it it can trigger a type of anxiety, a type of distress. And so in the short term, if you reject ambivalence and just focus on one side or the other, if you split and frame things and all, th that has a payoff in the short term. It's less distressing, less anxiety provoking. Things are simpler and clearer. It increases self-esteem in the short term. Okay. But the costs of it are high right. because if I'm seeing everything in all or nothing terms, that's a severe distortion of reality. It, it's just rare that that's happens um, in, in most everyday encounters. So if I'm seeing everything in those terms, I'm going to be really dysregulated. I'm going to be severely distorting and my interpersonal relationships are going to be really unstable because I can't tolerate this whole range of feelings. Right. So as soon as those get brought up, I feel ambivalence. I can't tolerate it, so I have to split. So if we go back to the depression thing, somebody's depressed, everything's negative, everything's negative, everything's negative, and you say, well, what about this thing that's kind of positive? They feel that ambivalence. They don't like it. They reject it. They go back to splitting. So in the short, very short term, that's easier. Long term, they're depressed. Right. The problem is, you know, but it says it says something. I think it is worth just sticking with depression for one second, because it does say something that depression is less painful than ambivalence. Fantastic <laughs> point. Yeah. 
so it's like it's easier to be depressed than to be ambivalent so that that is like so it's hard but i think people there are other examples maybe there's a couple just to kind of flesh this out a little bit so even sometimes it could happen with anxiety people focus on everything that makes them worried and feel insecure and they have a hard time tolerating reassurance and security you know it's like it's more it's security and reassurance are more threatening <laughs> you know being in ambivalent space which we are in which is that there's always a degree of uncertainty and risk in everything we do right. um, but that's usually pretty low that's harder than being panicked all the time hmm. so the 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 classic case of uh, splitting is on inpatient psychiatric units and this is where you see it a lot and maybe you have a young woman with borderline personality disorder I think this is the stereotype at least and she uh, she self-harms she maybe cuts herself with whatever she has around a razor blade something else your favorite Snoopy cup that she that she broke just to self-harm to guilt trip okay. you for, for criticizing her <laughs> I mean, just the hypothetical. Sure, <laughs> that's a that's a great example. That had the yes. So, but you, so she says to the she's in there for suicidal ideation. She's in the inpatient unit, and she says, "I will not cut if you give me extra access to the art room." And she'll have probably she'll have staff that she likes on the inpatient unit and staff that she, that are nurse ratchet. They're the bad ones. Okay. And the staff that she likes are going to say, Hey, you know what? Making art is a coping skill. And she wants to use a coping skill to help her not cut. That's the whole reason she's in the hospital in the first place. Let's give her this extra time in the art room and the bad staff that she doesn't like and who probably don't like her either are going to say, no way. You're rewarding her for threatening to cut by giving her a privilege that we don't give anybody else. And that is not going to be helpful to her. And we don't have the staff. We don't have the time. And it's sending a message to everybody on the unit that all you have to do to get special privileges is threaten to cut. Threaten, yeah. And so they're going to say no. Now, what happens? Now, on the staff, if you're not thinking about splitting, What's going to happen? The staff are going to split into two camps themselves. And one is going to say, you're being totally strict and unfair for not letting her get the time in the art room. And the other half is going to say, uh, you're enabling. And they're going to hate each other and they're going to start to fight okay, Incredible. with each other. Yeah, And then before you know it, the entire unit is dysregulated. And the people, the other patients who are there who don't have borderline personality disorder for whatever else, they're sucked in. And it's chaos. So this happens enough on inpatient psychiatric units that they are thinking about it all the time. Wow. And what needs to happen is you need to have 
because the emotions are so if the emotions that are evoked are so intense like it's like it's it's not i mean i'm talking about it in a pretty cool way but when you're in it it's heated and you feel it and so what what they need to have is you need to have a, a the head of your unit or the leadership of your unit needs to say hold on a second we're splitting yeah so what's happening here the patient with borderline personality disorder splits. She's framed half the staff is good, half the staff is bad. And if they don't keep an eye out, they're going to get sucked into it and everybody's going to be at each, at each other's throats. So we have to, their conflict is reflecting the patient's internal conflict. That's she can't, yeah. the, the patient can't tolerate that everybody has good and bad qualities. She can only have some have only good qualities. Those are the good staff. Some and some only have only bad, bad set. Yeah. Only bad qualities. And those are the bad staff. So then everybody gets sucked into it. So you have to say, we got to be ambivalent. We got to not split. We got to not be pulled into this enactment mm-hmm. and come back down to earth. And that's really, really hard to do. But you can see how just this is just another example. And I could go through issue after issue in mental health. Splitting comes up all the time and it is a widely it's in motivational interviewing cognitive behavioral therapy dialectical behavioral therapy it's in psychoanalysis it's everywhere and it's everywhere because it's incredibly useful and because it happens a lot and it's often really central to what cures mental illness um so like with if we're scaling it up and we can come back to the story that you gave, because I think that was that was interesting, too. But if we're scaling this up to society, you know, what we're seeing is if people can't tolerate that issues have ambiguity and uncertainty and benefits and risks and evidence for and evidence against, if people can't tolerate that, they get sucked into these patterns Mm-hmm. And when, when you're with other people who are splitting, the interpersonal pull, really, really strong interpersonal pull is either to split with them and sh- exactly the way they are or to oppose and split the opposite way. Right. And that interpersonal force is so strong uh, that it's just very easy to get sucked into these dynamics. There's no, no possibility of a middle ground at a certain point, right? You. That yeah. split, that that black and white thinking. I just love you so much. I just want to spend the morning just sitting here looking at you. How much? And I go, that's great. Let me go get a bowl of oatmeal from the kitchen. I'll be right back. And you come back, and she hates your guts. I mean, literally. Yeah, yeah, you're like, yeah. what, what the hell happened? While and what happened was like she decided to get dressed, and you know, started to get dressed, and then thought she looked ugly, and then just went to a dark place, and thought, and you came back, and you looked at her a certain way, and she interpreted that as judging her body or something you know who knows what happened but all of a sudden when she would get upset you know then then it's like you literally are the worst person in the world and and thus of course uh deserving of any level of abuse anything like you literally are beneath dirt and it's just like the gloves completely come off because the whole idea that a person deserves uh respect or compassion um even if you don't like them, even if you see faults in them, that's completely out the window. That was that's another yeah. thing with the, you know relating it to the cultural thing. There is like you know, if you don't agree with me, then you know you don't deserve anything. You don't deserve the slightest amount of consideration. You know, um, 
Yes. And that that it's funny that um that story you're telling about like the the sort of hypothetical story about you know in the in the uh, in the institution you know it's a, like I swear that could be her because she would yeah. she could take over that place man in like in like in like five minutes because you know the. the the master manipulator, you know, that's what they always say. Like these people are like yeah, a, a, yeah. A, a borderline personality disorder can be, you know, a master manipulator. And I remember, you know, after my relationship, I, I saw a therapist for a little while about this um, because I was just going like, hmm, I could, uh, that's not like the usual, the, the usual first move for me. But in this case, I was just like this, I, could, I need to bounce this off of somebody that can, you know, and I remember he yeah. said to me, um, he said, uh, one thing he said was, uh, um, you know, if this, he said, you know, if this, if this person is, you know, the way you describe her, then one thing you really need to understand is that what, what this kind of person will, will do is that they will constantly try to sort of transgress healthy boundaries and you cannot allow them to do that because if you do, they will, they will just, you know, you think that you're sort of giving in to sort of promote something healthy but what they're doing is just pushing limits and testing boundaries. And every time you give in, they take a little more and a little more and a little more until I think a lot of people have come to the point where they've gone, wait, what the hell happened? We were just, we had good intentions and we started giving into this crap. Like, you know, five years ago, we kind of started giving in and now it's resembled. I never would have believed the point that we've gotten to now. If you'd asked me in 2016. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> let me, let me, a cup about the splitting stuff and the borderline mm-hmm. personality stuff. Let me just kind of like respond a little bit to kind of the, some yeah. of the things that you said out there. So, uh, so what's, what's happening here? Well, splitting affects every aspect of the psyche. So, right. Because if you can't feel a whole spectrum of feelings, you can't think a whole spectrum of thoughts. So it's going to shape your sense of what's reasonable and not, what's true and what's false. It's going to shape your sense of morality, what's right and wrong. And it's obviously going to affect your emotion regulation. It's also going to affect your identity because you're just missing all of these aspects of yourself. And you have this kind of partial, unstable sense of self. And it's going to affect your sense of other people because they're partial too. And your ability to kind of have a well-regulated interpersonal relationship with other people. Right. It's affecting everything. So it has this total quality to it that then it comes out in interpersonal relationships where you're not a individuated, coherent person with strengths and weaknesses relating to another individuated, coherent person with strengths and weaknesses. You're kind of both partial people that are slipping and merging into each other and then being rejected. And it's, it's the, there's no coherence to it. And it's not just on an emotional level, but even on the level of how the person represents themselves and others and how they relate to others. It's impacting the full, uh, because they're splitting, it affects really their whole self and their, all of their, it's, it, it's, and the representations of other people and how those, how those, um, relationships go. And so when, when they're in one of these all good states where they're all good and you're all good, it has an attractive quality that does pull for maybe merger 
or a dissolution of boundaries. And it can be incredibly gratifying. And in these uh, moments of hatred, it's total hate. And it's a type of annihilatory kind of, or, you know, it can be this type of total annihilatory viciousness. And so uh, it's, it's just worth keep it. I think you're right. Like the, there's all, all this stuff that tends to go along with splitting borderline personality disorder as like a DSM category sometimes has some other features that go along with it too. And it's not just defined by splitting, even though I think it's associated very strongly with splitting. But um, anyway, I wanted to second everything that you were saying about that and i guess the um and kind of tie it tie it a little bit to the theory i think on the let, let let me say this because about the woke stuff i mean i when i talk about like an all or nothing framing of political ideas you know that political issues aren't all or nothing i people tend to be fairly receptive and i think it's because it has this kind of it's a platitude a little bit it's a little bit of a cliche of like everybody's too extreme yeah and there's kind of, I think it's very digestible, but it doesn't strike people as necessarily that helpful. Maybe there's a little bit more of an insight. It's a richer language and there's more happening in terms of the emotional aspects of what's happening. So maybe that resonates with people. Where where I get a lot of pushback is where I went in the article I wrote for the Wall Street Journal, which was that I think there's splitting based on race and gender and these other categories where essentially, you know, I think in large parts of culture, we have a paradigm where you can say only negative things about some categories and you can only say positive things about right. other categories. And, and, and the idea is, so if, if I could, I could say negative things about white people in polite company on TV and my academic job anywhere, I can say that they're toxic, fragile, ignorant, weak, that they're oppressors, that they um, need to be dismantled or feel shame or pain or that they're, you know, privileged and need to be silenced or discriminated against or whatever. I, I There's a lot of negative things. Some of them are pretty pointed that I can say about white people. But if I were to say anything that really unambiguously complimented or defended them, any sincere, wholehearted expression of positive affect about white people, it would it would literally sound racist to people so that it would literally be it. What would happen is it generates ambivalence that is disturbing and people would immediately, I think on an unconscious level, identify it as unreasonable, immoral, not true, hateful, racist, whatever. And they'd have to reject it. And that's true of any expression of positive emotion that's that's wholehearted about about white people, not not something that's backhanded about how you, know, you could say white people are good at oppressing other people or something. That's not really a compliment. But any sincere, <laughs> any sincere, wholehearted compliment of white right. people would actually sound that way because we don't have the ability as a culture to tolerate ambivalence about the fact of, of course, people of European descent have positive and negative cultural trends and dynamics. And of right. course, that's true of every other group as well. And obviously for other groups, I'd say, especially black people, but for other groups too, it's the inverse where they can be praised and celebrated in idealized, grandiose language for being 
proud, strong, noble, rich, enlightened, wise, righteous, whatever. You, as okay. a and, as a group, as a, as like, as a group, which is as insulting. a group, but and then, but to discuss this shortcoming or a problematic dynamic is intolerable. Right. And again, it would trigger ambivalence. It'd be intolerable. And people would think it's false, crazy, immoral, unreasonable, racist, etc. And they are not able to tolerate it. So we have this paradigm where people are unable to tolerate ambivalence about groups, unable to tolerate the mix of positive and negative feelings towards these groups that leads to this splitting that leads to repression of huge amounts of information. And the problem with that, I mean, I'd say there's basically, I'll just say quickly, I think there's three main problems. The first one is it's not accurate. It's not true that racial groups are all good versus all bad. If we're talking about it in that all or nothing language, we're missing tons of information. That means we can't solve problems. We can't understand each other. We can't predict fence. <laughs> We, our model is severely lacking. So it's a severe distortion. The second problem is it's really hateful. It's really hurtful. It's really emotionally dysregulating and, and psychologically unhealthy. And I think that's true for people of every group. It's true for white people who demonize themselves for their race. It's white people who don't and don't like being demonized for their race. It's for black people who buy into this ideology and think they're great and white people cause problems. And it's true for black people who don't buy into that ideology and, and feel like this is being done in their name. It's not healthy for anyone. And I'd say the third thing is it does not, splitting is not effective at helping people get along at creating Love, peace, justice, healing, truth, harmony, well-being, prosperity. There's no value that society has that frame that dividing people into groups saying only negative about one and only positive about the other. There's no aim that is no productive aim that's really fulfilled by this. So it's really, really hard. So I think it's incredibly high cost and incredibly distorted. But I really think when I start talking about this, I think I can feel often the anxiety in the room go up because I think it's hitting the nerve. And I'm that to me is proof that it's happening and that it matters. Yeah. yeah. We're hitting the nerve. And until my my claim, which I'm, you know, putting my reputation on, I guess, on to some extent, is, <laughs> is to say that until we can stop splitting based on demographic categories. And I think gender and other categories work in a similar way. Yeah. Until we can tolerate ambivalence and the full range of thoughts and feelings about every group, things are going to continue to be borderline in our culture. And they're going to continue to be abusive and repressive and weird and hostile and destructive and dysregulating and unhinged. And I think if I go to a place like where I work with Martha, you know, at Heterodox Academy, you know, we can have every dialogue intervention about how we need to understand each other and do we can do that uh, as much of that as we want until we can tolerate discussing groups in, in, a, in, in a way that is not split, that is not all or nothing, until we can tolerate those feelings and integrate that into a worldview, 
uh, I think things are going to be crazy. But but the idea of like, even as I'm talking about this, I know that if I were to actually spell something out and say white people, this is the thing, or black people, this is the thing. I know that we can't tolerate actually saying that. I know that our society is, we cannot actually tolerate those feelings and 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 process them. But I think if we become more aware that splitting is happening and we do talk about this process, especially splitting based on identity group, there really is hope that we can work through the defense and eventually have a more healthy, full, accurate and complete discourse. Um, but it's, it's people have fully internalized splitting as not just their morality, but their worldview. And they, they view people as good or bad based on their race. They view, you know, hatred towards one group is good. Hatred towards is <laughs> the other group is the greatest evil, you know, yeah. and, 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 and there's this opposite framing. One group needs to feel all pride and no shame. The other needs to feel all shame and no pride. One is always valid. The other is always invalid. One's always a victim. The other's always a victimizer. One has all the power. The other has no power. It's this all or nothing framing all the time where there's this inability to tolerate that there's a mix <laughs> yeah and they cannot and to even say it to to even to say something that's not split is the jugular vein of the dragon or whatever <laughs> and, and that's and and so yeah. i think but I, but it's it i do not think that we can get through this moment without addressing this dynamic that's my i'm proposing that i think that's yeah that's a great uh call to action there and i you know i guess that's the question we end up with is you know uh what how are we going to get through this moment because it is a cultural crisis i think yes Uh, right i mean this has gone beyond you know i'm always saying like this isn't just like the annoying hipsters in the coffee shop anymore you know because it really seems like obviously that's not where it came from those those guys were there because of a long chain of events leading up to it. But it really was like in 2015, you know, there even if not that long ago, um, I, I would never have believed that things had would have escalated the way that they did um, in, in just a flash, you know. Um, and it's really interesting to, 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 to think about, um, you know, how did this happen? Why did this happen? What's really going on? behind all of this that people are is it because we have just you know we've killed off god but surprise people still need god so they've just jumped hey look at this over here you know we can jump onto this is that like is that where they're getting that thing that they need to find meaning you know i'm a big like like uh i'm a big like ernest becker guy that's in and (laughs) i'm always constantly going like you know like all of your, all of your, your, your whole character is just a bunch of like secret neuroses or whatever it is. You know, it's like your, the, uh, you know, everything is just a defense mechanism. Like everything you're doing is just designed to sort of give you a sort of like, you, you know, an immortality project or this or that to help you just keep at bay the reality that you're just this dying creature, you know? So, so whether it's art, you know, 
for for a guy like me, it's like it's art or something. And for somebody else, it's their it's their it's their career and money or whatever, or it's just having beautiful women or whatever it is. You know, mm-hmm. I always understand everything through that like Becker kind of lens of like, oh well, that's just your death anxiety, you know, because that's my whole thing. Um, death anxiety, that's my thing. <laughs> but you know, I um to bring this around to the topic here. I I, I think about it like that, and I and I I look at the craziness that is that is that has that has come to pass on a just a widespread cultural level within such a short amount of time yeah i just cannot believe it. like otherwise intelligent people that that cannot uh figure out the most basic problems now of like you would think this would be common sense like you go questions come up like well do you think this is social content of course like of course it's social contagion you know but right. people like being unwilling to sort of even admit to yourself that something that just happened out of nowhere because of a social media uh, rebellion, but you still have to think of it as like an ingrained truth or something, you know? Um, anyway, I, yeah, uh, I no, I totally, I, behind I, it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I look, my, I tend to think this stuff is multi-determined and that there's lots of different causes to it. Um, and you can think about more closer to the source causes and maybe there's social media as part of it. And I think there, there could be something about a lack of meaning that's part of it. And I think there's all types of other social forces at play with it. Um, you know, and I, uh, I, I do, I guess the way that this, this framing with the splitting framing yeah. is more of a, how do you respond to it <laughs> type of thing? Because right. that if you, it, because it's like it, somebody comes into therapy with borderline personality disorder, what, what, what is this about? Are there genetic factors? Is there chronic childhood abuse? Is there, you know, did something happen recently? It was there drugs or, you know, who, you know, you could think about a lot of different things. And I think that is worth thinking about. Like I, I, I really do, but you usually start with how can we stop address the splitting because that tends to be so destabilizing of all the other attempts right. <laughs> to, to do things so that that tends to be one of the, one of the earlier things that we're, people will focus on. We're like in triage mode now. It seems we're, like, right. Right. You have to have like, <laughs> yes. And like, I think like with, if you take a step back and you're like, wait, wait a second, look at all of these media outlets, look at all these academic institutions do you do we recognize that they say almost exclusively or may, maybe exclusively negative things about one identity category and positive things about another? Almost exclusively. Do, does anybody right. think this could be accurate? Does anybody think that this could be the whole story? And how are we going to justify a discourse that says only negative things about one group and only positive things about another? You know, how, how can we justify that? Yeah. This can't be this can't be the non-hateful truth, unvarnished truth, if we were literally just dividing people into groups and we say only negative about one and only positive about the other. That there is something weird about that that is striking. And then it's then you get a moment of, wait, why can't we say positive things about this group or negative things about this one? And it's like, oh, they all sound racist to me. They all sound false to me. Something's about my reasoning. Something about my morality, something about my sense of what's racist and what's not has gone wrong. And it's not working. It's not working the way that I thought it was. And there's an ability to reflect on why is it that there are obviously strengths and positive things that in 
European culture that I, that are there, but none of them sound true to me. None of them sound ethical to, to say, why is it that I can know that every group has problematic trends and dynamics and yet it feels unethical up to me to acknowledge any of them or, or if they all sound crazy to me, like something is, so there's a moment of something is distorting my reasoning. Right. And, and, and th- there's the ability to reflect. Yeah. Just coming back to, you know, in your field, uh, you know, and what we were talking about at the beginning, you know, bringing it back around to that. Well, because the sacred institutions that you depend on, to define your ethics and to reinforce those ethics and to build what we consider to be a good society um, have all essentially betrayed us in, in a way. Maybe that's too strong of a, yeah. of a statement, but I don't think so at this point. I think they got pulled you know, into the they, splitting. Right. They got pulled into the They're like the head unit, head of the unit on the inpatient right. who, who rather than saying we need to not split, just joined one side and said, let's go to war. Right. And, and when, and that, that will wreck an inpatient unit for a long time. Wow. You so, cannot have that. Yeah. No, I need to give them a pass, you know, um, because they're like, I feel like they're like me in that old relationship of mine that I described where it's like, <laughs> you know, they've just, everybody has just, you know, when you're in the middle of the, of the, of the, of the battle, it's 2 a.m. and the person is accusing you of, of being a nutcase and, 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 and attacking you with, with sharp objects at 2 a.m. You know, you start developing weird uh, reactions and coping mechanisms. And I, and it seems like as a society, that's what we've done to the point where, you know, we're now instilling this, like on an institutional level, we're instilling guilt and shame. Like, I don't know, um, organized religion, you know, the things that we're all so mm-hmm, big yeah. on hating, like, look how terrible this is. We made people feel like on an institutional level, we like methodically intentionally instilled guilt for natural sexual impulses, for example. Or like it's easy if we use an example right, like right. that. Like until very recently, you know, making every uh, every 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 gay man feel like there was something horrible and evil and wrong about his, his natural sexual orientation and that he needed conversion therapy. We're just doing like a different kind of conversion therapy now, you know, mm-hmm. in a sense. I, I, you know, I think that this this call to action that you're giving is is really really does hit the nail on the head, uh, with, um, because it's 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 what's tearing our society apart, and it's also what's making us just really, just crappy human beings at a certain point, you know, uh, because it's mm-hmm. not true to anything that is beautiful or complex or interesting or true or illuminating about humanity is being denied, you know, to the point where we're ending up, we're just going to be a bunch of, well, like I said earlier, you know, we're kind of like cardboard cutouts of of actual people now. Um, And also just destroying ourselves, right? (laughs) I mean, this this can't, one thing is for sure, this can't continue. And, you know, your um, question there, you know, like, well, how are we going to, what are we going to do to get out of this? Uh, it's very deeply rooted, though. And, you know, one thing we've been talking about is that at the institutional level, you know, these institutions like our educational system, our, um, uh, you know, therapy, psychology, you know, even our very definitions of, of things in, in the DSM, for example, or like uh, the, the dynamic of, of, a, of, of your meeting with a therapist, for example, or what you're going to be taught when you go to college, you know, or just every time you turn on the television or your social media or anything, 
it's, you know, it's so deeply ingrained so that when you try to talk about like, hey, everybody, let's just like, you know, this this whole splitting thing. Let's, this is this is not great. Yeah. Let's try to kind of find a way to talk. And it's just so impossible now. What is going to have to occur to get past yeah. this moment? You know, because it's like a it's like a World War Two is about to start kind of moment. I always I always make that comparison. I, People get so pissed when you when you bring up anything because, you know. You're like bringing up something like this reminds me of something. Historically, this is not good. Everybody, you know, but but it's this like something's going to have to give. A storm is going to break here at some point. What I think so, and I think that if we can't if we can't do that in an in a well in a balanced, assertive, verbal, constructive way, it's going to happen in a really destructive way. Um, that's, that can potentially cause a lot more problems. And I, um, I, I do think the weakness of the splitting framework is that you have to kind of explain what it is and then you have to explain sort of how it applies and respond to questions. And it's not a, it's not a one minute thing. It's not a one minute conversation. It's not a news bite conversation. (laughs) It's not a news bite, but I think there is something about having the theory about having examples that aren't political where you can see it working and then um, maybe even it helps people intellectualize a little bit and that cools off some of the intensity. Yeah. Um, but I, I just think and, and, it, and it doesn't actually you're not actually coming out and saying these are all the things that you can't say. Right. Because those that's not going to you're just going to lock horns. That's not going to go anywhere. So I think it takes it does take a little bit more time. I just don't see as long as the discourse is broadly split. And I think at most mainstream institutions, it is as long as that's the case. I do not see things cooling off. What I think a lot of people maybe want is Okay, we're not going to disrupt the split dynamic. That's going to content, but we're just going to talk about it less. Or maybe some of the most aggressive elements of it, that some of the sharp edges are going to be softened a little bit. But basically, the paradigm is going to stay the same. I don't think that's a long-term solution. I, I, I'm not even sure that that's going to be very effective in the short term. Yeah. Um, but it's it's I, so I, other than talk, just pointing out that things are split and talking about that dynamic i don't really see uh i don't i don't know how else it gets it moves forward in a, in a positive direction yeah i you know i'm just i feel like i i thought about this um try to start this podcast since about 2015 i think sometime in there you know we started talking about like we should really do a podcast because we we have these we just get on the phone and we'll just talk we'll have these conversations and rant for you know for three hours uh-huh. we should just start recording i mean this is sort of one of my little attempts to just you know on on some little level to at least yeah yeah you know a couple of people out there maybe you know start but i mean it's it's just it feels like honestly to me i do feel like i, I try to be I'm trying to do something positive and constructive and of use, but it does feel like a lot of times it just, it feels like it's too late. Like something happened, like action needed to be taken, but you can't believe that. You just have to try, you have to keep doing it. Like, you know, like what you're doing um, and putting out, putting out a piece like that, that recent article, you know, that's just, that's adding a voice in there and saying, you know, 
and saying like, hey, everybody, hey, you know, <laughs> we need to, uh, you know, this idea about splitting, you know, I'm sure, you know, a lot of people uh, read that and, and, and I'm sure it makes sense, even though, like you said, it requires an intellectualizing People have to just kind of step back, you know. If you're reading an article, you're probably more one of those people anyway, because it takes time, and you know, that's actually takes some engagement. Uh, it takes engagement. I, it's like I, I, it's hard. It's my biggest barrier in terms of this is 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 not is having a hard time elevator pitching it because it's just not. It's hard to elevator pitch to people. It's like. I can't start with, hey, ever notice you can't say positive things about white people or something? Like, <laughs> what's up it, with it, that? It just doesn't, what's <laughs> up with that? You know, it doesn't, people, you know, it, it rings and, but it's not like, it does affect people. It is a distortion, but you have to set it up in the right way for people to be able to recognize that, right. no, this is like, this is just, we're not going to understand things and we're not going to be able to get along if we have this all or nothing framing. But it, it is hard to, um, it's hard to pitch succinctly. And that's the biggest, biggest barrier, um, uh, to, to getting the word out on it. How is that going? Like with your career to be one of these few people who is actually kind of, you know, um, like I don't have anything to lose really. I do a podcast uh-huh. because I mean, I'm not an academic, you know, I, I kind of wanted to be an academic and I felt that I kind of got pushed out. I was one of those people who uh. could never keep my mouth shut. And I just very early on, I just had very strong opinions and I just couldn't, I could never be like, I could never just kind of what you kind of have to do these days, uh, like if you're trying to get an English degree or something, you know, it seems like almost you're probably not going to get that tenure track literature job, you know, because I'm mm-hmm. I'm the guy who would get in the elevator and go, do you ever notice how you can't say anything bad about white people? Anymore? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, you know, I'm an adjunct professor. I, I make my income in private practice, and right. uh, and that's not and, affected by. You feel like you can, you know, you can kind of speak on these issues without. Um, no, I, th- there there is risk that other clinicians or other people in the field would hear what I'm saying, and then they wouldn't refer a patient to me or something like that, right. and that could affect my path practice. Right. So it's not. I'm not totally immune, but. Uh, I'm hoping that, I mean, my main goal is to build a practice focused on these issues and maybe, uh, you know, what I'd, I'd really like to have a clinic that specialized in doing research and best practices and treating, doing individual and group therapy for people who are self-censoring or working, figuring out issues related to race and gender and that, or they've experienced anti-male hate, anti-white hate, and they, they need support around those issues. I feel like there's basically no visible service provider right. in the country uh, focused on those issues. So I would like to start, I would like to build a clinic that focuses on them. My hope is if that's my career and that's, and I <laughs> can support myself serving that population, then that's a job where I wouldn't have to self-censor and maybe it would even be beneficial to me to speak up. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, I'm, it's, I'm waiting to be seen. It's, it's yet to be seen. Yeah. I, I do. 
people on an individual level tell me all the time that they would assume that there's a huge popular client base of people who would want a confidential space where they could fi- get help and figure right. this stuff out. Um, but the question really is like a marketing question of how do I connect to that population and how do I, you know, put up the bat signal and get them to be able to know that this is a confidential safe space where you can come. Right. That's a problem that I have not yet solved and I'm still working on. And, um, you know, I, uh, but I think once I get the population base, you know, I could potentially teach classes and train, I could train clinicians and provide support for graduate school people you know i could there's so many things do research write more studies write up case studies there's so much that could be done that's anyway that's professionally how things are panning out for me cool yeah um and uh, one other question and like i said i totally fine if you don't want to talk about this but i talk one of the things i talk about in the podcast a lot is the issue of um um like trans issues, we constantly end up talking about these issues because it's such a huge part. If you're going to talk about like this sort of identity politics mm-hmm. landscape, it's a huge thing, and it interests me specifically the issue of uh, you know, you know how this sort of trans landscape intersects with the psychology landscape and how those intersect, um, particularly with kids, how the 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 thoughts on the subject and the definitions and the uh, the protocols and everything are being adjusted, aligned with contemporary thinking or not, how those have undergone huge changes over the last not that many years. And also yeah. just, you know, uh, one of the things that I come kind of track is, is, for example, you know, just the sort of like, you know, kid comes in and says they're trans and, you know, boom, you just, it's the, the whole, the principle has, seems to be becoming more and more just always automatic acceptance and validation. And if you mm-hmm. are a therapist or a parent, for example, who who says, you know, who feels that something else is going on, more and more, uh, you know, your hands are being tied from being able to express that opinion or do anything about it. Uh, that's one of the issues that you see being written about a lot, being discussed a lot, parents feeling like their hands are being tied, therapist's hands being tied to some extent. So, for example, if you have a client with a history of, you know, and it's one of those things that's becoming completely unspeakable, really dangerous topic where you, because essentially it's like the new, uh, the new communist label or something like to say, that's like, that's such a dirty thing to question somebody's gender identity. So you end up with sayings like a Mm -hmm. child is the gender they say they are. You know, and then other mm-hmm. people will say, well, you're, you're, you know, you're ignoring a lot of the science on the subject or you're, you know, you're ignoring other mental health issues sometimes to even yes. bring this up, you know, to, to even bring this up makes you look like such a dirty person to even, like for me to even ask this question. Uh, I look yeah. like that's what, that's why I said no, like, you don't I, have to answer if you don't want to. I think it's no, no, no. I'm, I'm finding answering. It's not my area of expertise. I will say that, but I will just tell like my experience in graduate school was that basically in the, all the abnormal psych classes that I took, which is usually DSM kind of what's in the DSM class. Um, there was like no unit on, this it, it wasn't even a unit when was that in like the, the, 2013 2014 2015 right <laughs> and, and then bam. i'm telling you we psychologists deal with the same pressures for censorship that everybody else does 
in some ways it's even even more because it's such a woke field historically. Um, And it went from something that I frankly knew no one who knew anything about it as far like um, to very quickly, you cannot ask questions about this. And then I would watch on TV. I'm living through this. And this is in New York. And, I, you know, I don't know everybody in the field. And But my, my impression was that this is anecdotal. Maybe other people had different experiences. But mine was uh, the only people who wrote about it or who did research on it were activists. Right. And that it wasn't something that very many people knew anything about or did research about at all. And uh, most people knew very knew virtually nothing about it. And then I'd be watching TV and I'd hear on Bill Maher's show that or something like that, that there's a consensus among mental health professionals and that everything's been vetted and that we've figured it all out and everybody does. And I'm saying, I'm in this field right now and I've never had a lecture on it. And if I can get a PhD in clinical psych and not have a lecture on it and, and I'm not I'm in grad school in 2015, you know, and. You know, how how thoroughly could this have been vetted? And it just went to you can't ask questions about it. The concerns are real. And I think they, it took a while for them to sink in. I mean, I remember talking to somebody and they're like, if somebody wants to get a sex change, how could you possibly deny them that? Why would you know that's that's authoritarian? And I remember thinking, good point. You know what? You know, that's a good point. Right. I, I, I don't you know, it's your right. You're right to do what you want with your own body. Like and I and I, I've had, you know, um, you know, I've worked with people who are trans and had colleagues and friends that were trans. And and so I thought, you know what? Yeah, it's your right. Of course. And like and the idea, I think the idea that the doctor gets to vet you, they get to vet you for a year and analyze or if you're going to be allowed to get a sex change that feels like medical authoritarianism. Oh, hang on. Why would you, Let's why see. would, you know, that's not your, you know, and frankly, I don't trust medical expertise so much to, <laughs> you know, I'm not a huge, I don't like the idea of medical authoritarianism. So I think all of my, my, insi- all of my instincts were, yeah, anybody who wants to get a sex change should be able to, but it doesn't take that long to think, what about somebody who's the victim of sexual abuse, right. you know, who may think that getting a sex change is going to make the trauma go away or the, the parent wanted a boy, wanted a girl instead of a boy. And this is their way of making their mom happy. You know, you're talking about a big population of people and some of them have all kinds of different ideas about what this is going to do for them. I'm going to get a sex change. And when I come out, all my problems are going to be gone. Right. People say things like that and people think things like that. And so and, you know, there are things like there are concerns about high rates of correlation with of autism with trans identity. You know, mm-hmm. so the idea of you don't fit in well, this is your way of explaining it. And maybe getting the transition, especially as a child, isn't going to make things better for you. My point is all of these things seem like valid questions and they have bearing on what's the proper due diligence the therapist should do in order to prevent harm to anybody, you know, to people who might get a transition and, and, and 
how do you share information in a way that's constructive that prevents harm as best you can without being medically authoritarian? I think it's I think it's a hard question. I think usually children are treated differently. Um, and that's because their judgment capacities are not fully developed. And um, and the idea that they might impulsively make a life-changing decision around changing their sex and then regret it relatively quickly, that's conceivable. It's conceivable for adults too, frankly. And so you just want to be thoughtful about it and compassionate about it. But my sense is that never really happened, that all the anybody who had a concern about anything was denounced at a certain point. It wasn't no, it wasn't on anybody's radar. And then it went to being something you couldn't talk about. And there was never a period of robust intellectual discourse and research on the issue. And um, my big concern right now, and again, maybe this is unfounded. I hope it's un, I, I don't think it's unfounded, but I hope it is, is that acknowledging that you made a mistake transitioning to the other sex. That's a bitter pill to swallow. That is not an easy thing to acknowledge. And my, and my guess would be a lot of people would sooner die than acknowledge that. And uh, then when, but the, the ideology is that if all the rates of self-destructive behavior, whether it's drug use, whether it's suicide, whether it's anything else in the trans community, they're caused by one and only one factor, and that's transphobia. So if the rates of trans suicide are going up, the only acceptable explanation is transphobia is going up. And there is no other explanation that is acceptable. Right. And that just prevents people from getting good information. You know, you, you would want... You would want the people who regretted it to transition back, maybe get support and maybe even file a lawsuit to change things or make their voices heard so that things could change. But my guess is probably a lot of them won't do that. Yeah. yeah well, thank you for that answer, uh, because that is um, that's this is why I like no matter what I'm talking about, about the. On, on whatever podcast episode it is, I always end up somehow talking about trans, the trans issue again. Like, how do we get on the trans thing again? Because it is the perfect transgender kids, particularly. And when I say kids, I mean up to and including, you know, young adults and people like that um, who are making, who are making decisions based on, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of voices in their ears, uh, you know, Sort of, and that the, what you describe as the uh, this feeling where my problems are all going to be so my problems are all being caused by one thing, and they're all going to be a, they're all going to be solved by this action. You know whether that's well, action- it, 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 let me let me be very 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 clear. Yeah, I uh, these are hypotheses. These are questions. We just need research to know how much does this happen yeah. or not happen. I think they're legitimate questions and concerns that right. need to be evaluated and debated. My concern 
is, again, as somebody who doesn't specialize in this, is that these questions are not being aired, that the research is not being done right. with sufficient rigor to address these concerns. Right. You know, they're all questions. How often does this happen? Does it happen at all? How often does this other thing happen? Is it is it that common? Is it a very rare thing that, you know, I have an anecdotal story of, but it doesn't bear out in the data? And, and it just, that's the... It, just, just to just to hit the nail on the head, right? Though. Like, the, yeah. the, it's there is not definitive. My impression is there is not definitive research one way or another about a lot of these questions, and a part, a big part of it is people are afraid to do the research. Yeah. That's my impression. This is my sense in the culture, and when I talk to other providers, other psychologists, and other academics about this, this is what I've. The answer is I don't know. Most providers and most practitioners and maybe even most academics and most professors don't know. Right. I think there's a lot of, um, yeah, those, the, you know, your description of what those questions, the kind of questions we kind of need to ask about this um, was a great list uh, because, you know, there's, yeah, there's this tremendous amount of, of, of double thinking going on, you know, like for example, um, you know, the idea that like a six-year-old is whatever they say they are, you know, it's so easy to just go, okay, what if they say this? And then people, well, you're being ridiculous. No, not really. Right, you know, like, right, they, right, you know, right. I mean, uh, like the, you can hear, you know, you can say, okay, so the 16-year-old can decide to go on, you know, these, these hormones, but they can't, they can't consent to sex with a 19 year old or buying a pack of cigarettes even, you know what I mean? You can't possibly justify that's, I mean, the podcast, the show is called, you can't have it both ways. I'm constantly, I have this obsession with consistency and this is my natural instinct is to say, you can't have this and not this. When you talk about, uh, uh, trans kids, you know, uh, detransitioners and things like this, that really gets into territory of, you know, you know, really, that's the one where you really, boy, this is one of the areas you can't even speak of this, you know, to question anything. Detransitioners are silenced, you know, they're seen as like instantly, it's like you've betrayed us mm-hmm. and gone to the other side. There's just, this is just an area where, particularly when you get into dealing with really kids, kids, you know, when you see like eight-year-olds on the internet who are celebrities for being trans, you know, when you look at the sort of encouragement, every time somebody says they're trans, they're instantly labeled, oh, you're so, what's the first thing? You're so brave. You're so heroic, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. When I say things like, when I, I say all the time that people are sort of encouraged to sort of see all of their problems as being a result of this one thing, and then they are you know, they're sort of encouraged to say if they if they realize that they're trans, you know, then that's going to explain a lot of things. And I have personally experienced, you know, people like again, again, this is sort of like, you know, a documentary film. I feel like I've been for years now, I've been going, I should really start, you know, going around talking to people like you, um, to say like what's going on in the in the industry, uh, and what's going on in culture. What have you seen? Because for me, one of the points was, you know, that documentary film I was trying to make, I was doing, um, I was doing, you know, uh, you know, doing interviews and recording this, 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 uh, this, this completely, um, this person who, uh, my ex, who I described, um, who had, who was she, um, considered herself non-binary and had had a top surgery. Um, Mm. And I went with her to get her, 
uh, she had had the top surgery when I met her. I went with her and recorded her getting her stitches out, and I interviewed her surgeon who did the surgery. And this is after I've logged, you know, about 50 hours of her psychotic episodes and her relating. When you say, okay, tell me about yourself, the first thing she will do, the first thing she will do is tell you about a lifetime of trauma and tell you, and she will describe for you that her trans identity is essentially a direct result of trauma. And there's that double think, right? Where you're saying, this is who I am. I was born this way. This is, there's, you know, you know, how dare you tell me that this is anything else. But then they would describe it to you as a result of trauma. And I interviewed her surgeon and I said, do you, you know, essentially what you were describing earlier, do you vet, do you have to vet people, um, mental health right. issues, things like that, you know? And he said, uh, you know, I've, I've never had, you know, at that time, this was like 2016. And he had said, you know, we really didn't ever do this until about a year ago. And suddenly we had this, suddenly we had a 2000% uptake and 90% of those were young women between the ages of like 18 and 21. Coincidence? <laughs> Could that be? And I yeah, and he, yeah, he said yeah. he said I have never seen any evidence of mental instability in anyone I have operated on, and I'm going well. You you've operated on this person who who is who has been diagnosed like he's not a psychiatrist, right? And this person has been diagnosed BPD, schizoaffective, all these things, and he's not a psychiatrist. And so to me, me knowing this person and also watching her evolve over the next three years, you know, for a fact, right. there's um, she would say. I don't regret having done it because I can never regret something, you know, that, that kind of thing. Like I'm, she wouldn't allow herself to regret it, but obviously to me, to me, I, of course, I have no right to say this. Um, you know, I'm going to you know, just cut this out or whatever, just a personal thing. But to me, you know, really obvious to me that this was just the trans identity for her, the surgery, all of these things, uh, was all much more related to, um, eating disorder and a sort of a Peter Pan syndrome more than anything, you know, this, this sort Uh of like she weighed 78 pounds, you know, her whole thing was just to, she, every day she would say something like, you know, when I was a kid before everything was wonderful before sexuality and before this, and then sex and men and, you know, men with these terrible men with these penises came along and ruined my life and traumatized. And I'm going, so I'm coming from Ernest Becker going like, you were just upset that you're a human being. And it reminds me of, it's a quote from Norman Brown or somebody who said, you know, what you were attributing to uh, to this is actually more properly attributable to just the general condition of being human, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's I think that a lot when people talk about, um, you know, the there when it comes to issues of gender or sexuality and things like this. A lot of times they're just saying like this this is a bad deal. The, me as a, as a cis straight white man just says like. This is a bad deal. Like, like life is meaningless. Yeah. It's an ever widening vortex of uh, despair and hopelessness. But I don't have anything to fall back on to say, like, you know, I never fit. I never like. What kind of life is this? But if you're being given a very specific platform, then you have something. You know, this is just my my thing. But like, then you have something very specific dependent on. You know, and you're not angry at God or the universe anymore. You're angry at at men or straight people or cis people or whatever it is, white people. You yes. Know? That's sort of, yes. that's kind of my thing. I just constantly revolve about, you know, and, you know, I, those, you know, I, yeah, I think those are the types of, those are anecdotes and I've heard anecdotes like that, you know, and I think, I think it does start on some level. The scientific method 
does start with observational research and case studies first, and then it goes to more quantitative stuff over time. I think that's not always, but often. And I think that's a, I think recording the case studies is a great place to start to sort of ask questions and note things that people are seeing and then see if there are good ways to measure them um, and, and to confirm or disconfirm how often these things are happening or, 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 or what their nature is. So, yeah, I think, I think you're right. And I, um, I, uh, and, and, and just to be, you know, without naming names, you know, seasoned psychologists, you know, uh, will privately share concerns along those lines. And so, um, yeah. So I think, I think, I think your concerns are well-founded. I, you know, but, What's my place?